Now we want to tell you a story. And as we're telling you this story, and we go through the rest of the service, which is all just going to be here with all of us and the music playing intermittently, let yourself just move into a space. There's going to be images of nativities from, from classical art to kids' drawings that you can look at. But let yourself kind of go a little bit unfocused. Go kind of into a theater of the mind and allow yourself just to absorb and seep in the ideas and the thoughts and the emotions that we're going to go through this morning. And see if you can find that place. See if you can find that space to get lost in this Christmas story that has to be our story as well. And that story begins like this. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And so the story begins. It's been called the greatest story ever told, and yet it begins in the unlikeliest of spots, with an infant in the hands of a poor rural couple swept up in the movement of an empire. It's a story we know very well. In fact, we know it so well that all its pieces and parts, the characters and the settings, seem to be etched in our minds and hearts at birth. It's as if 2,000 years of telling and retelling of writings and reenactments from the greatest stages and actors of an age to children in bedsheets have created a collective knowing about this little family, this holy family being moved about by God and Rome. And about this God who chooses to live among us, to love among us as one of us. And so the story begins. And as it unfolds, we nod and smile at the familiar images. But there's a danger here of missing the point. Because far too often, we can know something so well that we don't know it at all. We can be so familiar with something that we're not aware of it anymore. Like music on an elevator. This story that we seem to have known before memory can remain just that story. When a story is just a story, it's safe. When a story is just a story, it can be held at arm's length and studied, believed or not believed, treasured and even loved. But at arm's length, it's still just a story. A beautiful story that stirs us and fills us with breathless intent but is quickly packed away with nativity scenes and strings of lights. At arm's length, a story can be brought out and displayed once a year and never allowed to touch the places that really matter. The story continues. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all that, her, and all that they heard wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary. Miriam in her language. She pondered these things in her heart. She held them up close and turned them over and over. She obviously didn't understand them fully and was probably overwhelmed by them. Some things in life are just too big to get all at once. What was it about this story that she was living that she needed to know? What is it about this story that we need to know and know so deeply that our lives actually change right at the center of their orbits, just as Miriam's did? The story itself is so short. The precious few lines in Matthew and Luke that tell us all we know of Yeshua, Jesus, birth, infancy, and childhood give only the broadest details, the barest outline. So much more is not said than said and remains hidden between the lines. And in that vacuum, all those missing human details we really want to know, we sometimes imagine that Miriam and Yosef were somehow different than us. Maybe so full of God's spirit that they didn't feel the same risks that we do every day, that they always followed God's direction without question and never fought or were irritated or afraid, never felt guilt or regret. I know it's kind of weird to think that Mary and Yosef were fighting sometimes. Do you think they really were? They were a human married couple, of course. We've got to bring them back in. We've got to bring them back into our lives and see ourselves in the middle of the story. Because we can imagine all sorts of ways that Yeshua's family was different than our own. But as soon as we see them as other than us, we remove ourselves from the story. And that was never the intent of our sacred writings. We were never meant to merely read this story, but to enter into it participate in every detail and experience what Yeshua's family and friends experienced of his life and his love? If, in a very real way, we can't become Miriam and Yosef, 
see God with us in the faces of our own children as they did in the face of theirs, then we've missed the point. Long before Matthew wrote it down in his gospel, Yeshua's earliest followers had called him and understood him as Emmanuel, a Hebrew word that Isaiah used centuries before and which literally means God with us. To everyone who really knew him, Yeshua was God with us. To Miriam and Yosef, in a way they may never have fully understood, this pregnancy, this birth, this crying infant, this toddler, this youth, this boy they raised to manhood, was Emmanuel, God with us. But he was still their infant, their little boy that they touched, held, and caressed. When we remove ourselves from our understanding of Yeshua's birth and life with his family, we remove our own ability to experience Emmanuel, God with us, in the eyes and the faces and the lives of those closest to us, the ones hanging their toothbrushes next to ours. We miss the main point, that God came and dwelt amongst us, that Yeshua lives and dwells among us still in every pair of eyes we encounter. Yeshua began life as all children do. Luke tells us he grew in wisdom and stature, which means that he had to learn as we learn. Did he make mistakes too? What must it have been like to parent Yeshua? Can you imagine? Any baby changes our lives beyond recognition. Right, Aaron? More than any other single event in our life, our babies change our lives beyond recognition. But this child? How did Yeshua change his parents' lives? How will he change ours? Years ago, I ran across a a haiku online, a short poem written by a mother to her young daughter, and it so struck me that it's become a recurring theme in our Christmas services. Beautiful chaos. An unexpected gift that I love beyond life. You've changed my life in such a wild and wonderful way, my little girl. Thank you. Love, Mommy. Did you hear the words that she used? Beautiful chaos. Unexpected gift. Wild and wonderful. I love those words. These are words and images only intimate experience could express. A child is chaos personified, yeah? Bringing the unexpected into our lives at every turn, and usually at the worst possible moment, too. Hey, buddy, there he is. Now, the trick that this mother has learned, at least on a good day, right, is to hold what we normally see as opposites together in one embrace. Beautiful chaos. Unexpected gift. To hold beauty and chaos together in a single grasp is to see the beauty in chaos and chaos in the beauty of life. Children are God's metaphor for life, his metaphor for kingdom. They embody and embrace all life's seeming opposites and contradictions, as we do as well when we embrace our children. Yeshua brought beautiful chaos to Miriam's life. But even beautiful chaos is still chaotic, disorienting, and frightening. 
Hebrew girls were traditionally betrothed at 12 and a half. So Miriam was just a child herself, possibly as young as 13 or 14, when suddenly faced with a pregnancy outside of marriage, an offense for which she could have been stoned. Imagine the terror of telling her family and her future husband the agonizing weight for Yosef's decision upon hearing of his, that his fiancée was pregnant. Would he break the engagement, prosecute legally, send her away secretly? Imagine Yosef's pain and anger. Imagine the financial pressures and uncertainty about the future, about God's will, about the child himself. But Yosef takes Miriam and her unborn child to himself and covers and protects her with his love. And with that decision made, the whirlwind of their marriage begins. Beautiful chaos. Unexpected gifts. Yeshua thrust Miriam and Yosef on a journey that took them a lifetime away from Nazareth and all they knew and loved. How much did Miriam know of the beautiful chaos that awaited her acceptance of this child? We think that since the angel spoke to her, she must have been fully informed. But when spirit speaks to spirit, sometimes the message isn't as much intellectual as heartfelt. And whatever Miriam may have understood about her role in Emmanuel, could it really have prepared her for all the wild and wonderful things that followed? What did Miriam really know? When did she know it? Miriam were right in front of us right now, we'd see a child, an eighth grader. Can you imagine that? But children grew up fast in the ancient world. They had to. So Miriam had her own personality formed, her likes and dislikes established, and her own defensive and offensive emotional weapons at hand that she used to get what she needed and wanted, just like every person on this planet. But what happened to Miriam at such an early age was that God had disarmed her, taken those human weapons built out of fear and replaced them with trust in God's own presence and connection. But disarmament was just beginning in her life. The beautiful chaos of her son's life from beginning to end could only have disarmed her further and further as she had to accept who he was and the path he chose, and continued to love with her whole heart, however broken at times. Can you see yourself in Miriam's eyes? Haven't you been scared and anxious, angry at circumstances, stuck in dangerous places you felt you'd never escape, defending yourself as best you could, attacking when necessary? Have you ever really disarmed from those moments? What would ever induce you to lay down your arms and stick your head out of your foxhole and trust that there was new life for you if only you venture out in a new direction? Answer a call out of the safety of your defenses to accept a new reality, a new life in your arms. I want to take what's going to seem like a real left turn this morning. Surprise, surprise, right? But stay with me for a bit. 
We're going to be traveling from December year one of the Common Era to a distant Christmas in December 1914. World War I was only five months old. And after a furious German advance into France and Belgium, the lines on the Western Front ground into a stalemate, and both sides dug trenches, sometimes only 50 yards apart. Launching attacks, neither side could break through, and a terrible waiting began. In miserable, cold, wet weather, soldiers waited in the mud for something to happen. And on Christmas Eve, on the lines in Belgium and northern France between the British and German trenches, something did. In a letter to his sister, a British soldier tells the story. Christmas Day, 1914. My dear sister Janet... perfectly timed because it's two o'clock in the morning. Isn't that perfectly timed? It's two o'clock in the morning and most of our men are asleep in their dugouts. Yet I could not sleep before writing to you of this Christmas Eve. In truth, what happened seems almost like a fairy tale. And if I hadn't seen it myself, I would scarce believe it. Just imagine while you and the family sang carols before the fire there in London, I did the same with enemy soldiers here on the battlefields of France. Just yesterday morning, Christmas Eve, we had our first good freeze. Cold as we were, we welcomed it, because at least the mud froze solid. Everything was tinged white with frost, while the bright sun shone over all. Perfect Christmas weather. During the day, there was little shelling or rifle fire from either side, and as darkness fell on our Christmas Eve, the shooting stopped entirely. I went to the dugout to rest, and lying on my cot, I must have drifted asleep. All at once, my friend John was shaking me awake, saying, Come and see. Come and see what the Germans are doing. I grabbed my rifle, stumbled out into the trench, and stuck my head cautiously above the sandbags. I never hoped to see a stranger or more lovely sight. Clusters of tiny lights were shining all along the German line, left and right as far as the eye could see. What is it? I asked in bewilderment. And John answered, Christmas trees. And so it was. The Germans had placed Christmas trees in front of their trenches, lit by candle or lantern like beacons of goodwill. And then we heard their voices raised in song. song. Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht. I'd never heard the song before, but John knew it and translated, Silent Night, Holy Night. I've never heard a lovelier song or more meaningful in that quiet, clear night. When the song finished, the men in our trenches applauded. Yes, British soldiers applauding Germans. And then one of our own men started singing. We all joined in. The first Noel, the angels did say. In truth, we sounded not nearly as good as the Germans with their fine harmonies, but they responded with enthusiastic applause of their own and began another, O Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum. And then we replied, O come all ye faithful. But this time they joined in, singing the words in Latin, Adeste Fidelis, British and German, harmonizing across no man's land. I would have thought nothing could be more amazing. But what came next was more so. English, come over, we heard one of them shout. You know shoot, we know shoot. There in the trenches, we looked at each other in bewilderment. Then one of us shouted jokingly, You come over here! (laughs) 
And to our astonishment, we saw two figures rise from the trench, climb over their barbed wire, and advance unprotected across no man's land. And one of them called, send officer to talk. I saw one of our men lift his rifle to the ready, and no doubt others did the same. But our captain called out, hold your fire. And then he climbed out to meet the Germans halfway. We heard them talking, and a few minutes later, the captain came back with a German cigar in his mouth. We agreed there will be no shooting before midnight tomorrow, he announced, but sentries are to remain on duty, and the rest of you stay alert. Across the way, we could make out groups of two or three men starting out of the trenches and coming toward us. Then some of them were climbing out, too, and in minutes more... There we were in no man's land, over a huddled sold, over a hundred soldiers and officers of each side, shaking hands with men we'd been trying to kill just hours before. Before long, a bonfire was built, and around it we mingled British khaki and German gray. I must say, the Germans were the better dressed with fresh uniforms for the holiday. Only a couple of our men knew German, but more of the Germans knew English. I asked one of them why that was. Because many of us have worked in England, he said. Before all this, I was a waiter at the Hotel Cecil. Perhaps I waited on your table. Perhaps you did, I said, laughing. He told me he had a girlfriend in London and that the war had interrupted their plans for marriage. I said, don't worry. We'll have you beat by Easter, and then you can come back and marry the girl. He laughed at that. And then he asked if I'd send her a postcard he'd give me later, and I promised I would. Another German had been a porter at Victoria Station, and he showed me a picture of his family back in Munich. His eldest daughter was so lovely, I told him I should like to meet her someday. He beamed and said he would like that very much and gave me his family's address. Even those who could not converse could still exchange gifts. Our cigarettes for their cigars, our tea for their coffee, our corned beef for their sausage. Badges and buttons from uniform changed owners, and one of our lads walked off with the infamous spiked helmet. I myself traded a jackknife for a leather equipment belt, a fine souvenir to show when I get home. As it grew late, a few more songs were traded around the fire, and then all joined in for I'm not lying to you, all Lang Syne. Then we parted with promises to meet again tomorrow, and some even talked of a football match. I was just starting back to the trenches when an older German clutched my arm. My God, he said, why cannot we have peace? And I'll go home. I told him gently, that you must ask your emperor. He looked at me hard then, perhaps my friend, but also we must ask our hearts. What does it all mean, this impossible befriending of enemies One cannot help imagine what would happen if the spirit shown here were caught by the nations of the world. What if our leaders were to offer well wishes in place of warnings, songs in place of slurs, presents in place of reprisals? Would not all war end at once? All nations say they want peace. Yet on this Christmas morning, I wonder if we want it quite enough. Your loving brother, Tom. You see, Christmas has a hold on us. Established in the earliest memories of our childhood, it was a time of lights and magical traditions, 
reinforced in the study of our faith, deepened in the presence of our own children, and returned to in our darkest moments when the hope of newborn life is all we seem to have left in the mud. It's amazing that even in our darkest moments, there can still be a song in us, a smile, a laugh, a game of football. As the hope of Christmas calls us to see God with us, even through the desolation of no man's land. Christmas is always calling us back to our best selves. We arrive with shepherd and wise men to see Miriam and Yosef patiently tending to each detail. We hear this angels still singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth, goodwill toward men, peace and goodwill toward us. The promise of hope that we see in every newborn's eyes, magnified intensely in the newborn Emmanuel, God with us. And if God is with us, what need is there of trenches and barbed wire? And we enter the story. Or better, when we let the story enter us, the miracle happens, and peace breaks out spontaneously all around. Where is this Christmas calling you? Out of which defense or circumstance? If we're willing to let Christmas begin to disarm us, as it did Miriam and a British soldier, we'll have something to write home about as well. And this is the basis of the little tradition that we've developed of decorating our Christmas tree. And as we play these next songs, Marion is going to tell you exactly what your part is to play in this unfolding story. We have a little tradition here at The Effect. We do it every single year. We're going to go over to the Christmas tree, and over here there are some bulbs. And there are some Sharpies, and there are some hangers for the bulbs. And if you could, this last year made you thankful? Do you have a prayer? Do you have something you want to write to Jesus? I have praise reports, so I'll be writing mine. Last year I wrote a prayer. So come and welcome to our tradition. To those of you that have never done this before, I hope you will be doing it with us for years and years and years. So please come get a bulb and a marker and write something for Jesus. And after you have decorated the tree, in the little anteroom there, we call it the Bubba Room, are the communion elements. And you can take the communion elements and come back to your seat and just partake on your own. Find that space again in your heart that allows you to be just present to God and realize what it means to take into ourselves all that Jesus is. The world was hopelessly divided in 1914, but two opposing armies with no man's land in between them had a common heritage and a faith in Yeshua's birth that broke through their defenses. Their belief in the reality of God with us allowed them for just a moment, in spite of their orders and acquired hatred, to see their enemy as fellow humans 
with families and girlfriends and hopes and dreams. God with us impelled them to disarm and risk their lives to share that moment in a way the world has rarely seen. Today, we are no less divided, maybe even more so, as over the past hundred years, we have lost much of the common heritage of our faith that used to bridge some of the gaps between us. With best intentions and concern for our common future, we disagree on the best way forward. And the stakes for our children are so high, it seems that everyone in our path must be separated, as if by the prow of a ship, into those who must be persuaded or defeated on one side, and those we can stand beside on the other. But we become what we think about every day. Let me say that again. We become what we think about all day. And if we focus too long on what separates us, we become the separation. We become the incarnation of the problem of humanity, the problem in human form. Christmas is the incarnation of the solution. Yeshua has newborn hope in human form. Every newborn promises hope in human form, the promise of all that's possible in us. But though we all lose our promise along the way and lose our hope, Yeshua is the promise fulfilled, the hope that never fades. And turning toward that hope, Christmas is a shared moment when we can suspend all the theology and doctrine and heavy-headed things that separate us and get lost in the miraculous and the mysterious, the lights and songs, the family traditions that inhabit our clearest first memories, the unthinking bliss of holding a child's easy weight in our arms, all the bits that identify us as human in spite of all our differences. These human bits bound German and British soldiers together more powerfully than their nationalism, politics, fear, and hatred tore them apart. For a few precious moments over Christmas, only 50 yards from their greatest fears, their common humanity brought them back from the dead to find long-lost brothers wearing different uniforms. Now, Yeshua lived in the same world that we do, and he was fully aware of the realities of life and never disregarded them. There is opposition in life, and we often disagree for good and necessary reasons. Yeshua never shrank from that, and he did his share of opposing for really good reasons as well. But however long and hard he fought, he never let people fall into separate camps never stops seeing the human connection with himself. In his mind and heart, there were only and always people who needed the disarming hope and acceptance that dissolves fear. Now whether they and we disarm is entirely up to us, but Yeshua never stops pouring his love against our defenses. Now, this may be a difficult new year, for us as a country and us personally. But as if in preparation, Christmas is asking us if we can remember who we really are 
Whether we can see in a newborn infant the hope that disarms and brings us back out to play in our common humanity. And as if she were overhearing us, another mother writes of a moment with her infant daughter. Now as she lies beside me, I whisper to her in the pre-dawn darkness, you will never know. And as I look at her perfect dimpled hand, I realize that she will never love me the same way I love her. Every mother loves more than she is loved. I feel no sadness or envy at this realization. It just comes to me as an absolute truth, like suddenly noticing that the sky is blue, and it has been all along, and I just haven't been paying attention. Pale light seeps in through the bedroom window. I don't want to move. I don't want to get up. I don't want to leave her. I bury my nose in the pink folds of her neck and inhale deeply. This will have to sustain me for the day, so I savor her scent, lingering as long as I can. Later, while I'm miles away, I'll be able to summon it up during a rare, quiet moment and pretend that she is with me. Fueled by baby smell, I go to the window and open the blinds. The stars are fading, and the sky today is a crisp, clear blue. Fueled by baby smell. Don't you just love that? (laughs) Fueled by baby smell. Fueled by baby smell, we can move out into the unknown and chaos of our lives and never lose sight of the beauty that is always equally present. Fueled by baby smell, we can carry our atmosphere of Emmanuel around us as a diver carries around oxygen. Fueled by baby smell, we can live our lives never far from the remembrance of our own childhood that keeps us close to Yeshua's way of living and loving. Miriam and Yosef were parents. We are parents. Even if we've never had children or the nest is empty, Miriam and Yosef found Emmanuel in the unlikeliest of circumstances. We can do that too, if we so desire. There is a bond, a sameness between us and this holy family that we share as humans living with little humans. Our stories are their story, and their story is ours. To miss that, to miss entering into Emmanuel here and now, is to entirely miss the point of the greatest story ever told, which is our story, the story we find ourselves in. Every day, every moment, and every detail of our beautiful chaos. <laughs>